0: have a tall order before me. I'm not only talking about a tall man, I have a tall order in trying to describe half of the life of King Saul in one sermon. Uh, But what we're really doing is beginning a series of sermons on the life of David, one of the greatest biographies of the Bible, a man who literally is a prototype, humanly speaking, for Jesus Christ, the man who was called the man after God's own heart. And I expect this to extend for a number of months. We'll break, of course, for some Christmas considerations, but uh, move right into 2015, Lord willing, considering this. But first, we have to paint a portrait of the man who preceded David. And to do that, I have a, a series of texts. I would advise today that you keep a Bible open in front of you because I'm going to be moving through things. And if you want a homework assignment, I give you these. I don't know if anybody takes me up on them. But a homework assignment would be read all of 1 Samuel 8 through 15, 1 Samuel 8 through 15, and pick up the character of Saul as the wrong king before we look at David, who was God's choice. So I'm going to read a a series of of texts, as you can see, indicated in your bulletin here. First of all, 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel… By the way, the hymn, Here I Raise in Ebenezer comes from 1 Samuel 7:12 a stone was put up the prophet Samuel said God has brought us this far and let this stone mark it well it's good he put that marker there because from then on they pretty much turned away from the Lord for a period of time under Saul here's what happened the the nation had had judges prophets that God was leading to rule Israel, but when the sons of Samuel became the heir's apparent, they were crooked men, it says in the beginning of 1 Samuel 8. So we read this. Then, verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered and came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now obey their voice, only solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. Well, in my Bible, right across the column, you have 9-2, where the man is selected. Samuel comes and looks for this man, the son of Kish. Saul, his name was, and the characteristic of him is given, a handsome young man. There was not among the people of Israel a more handsome man. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. So, of course, he was qualified. Well… We go on, and we see Saul is anointed, and some things happen. I'm jumping over to chapter 13. Explaining very quickly here, Saul was waiting to go into battle, and Samuel had said, don't, don't start the battle against the Philistines until I come as the authorized priest of Israel and offer a sacrifice before the battle. So here's the scene. Saul is waiting for Samuel to come. 1 Samuel 13:8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering it, Samuel came. Saul went out to meet him and greet him, and Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines were mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For when the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now I add one more piece. This is more Scripture than we usually have, but you need to put this picture together. Another situation, First Samuel 15, I begin at 10. And I'll explain a little bit, but God has given a command that the Amalekites, a very wicked nation, were to be destroyed by the armies of Israel, completely destroy everything. Here's the word of the Lord, for Samuel 15.10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was as it was told to Samuel. Saul came to Carmel and set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, "'Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord.'" Samuel said, "'What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear?' Further down, Saul is confronted with his sin of not completely carrying out God's command. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, Saul, that is, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord our God. And there's much more we could read, but let's try to make some sense out of all that this morning. Father, show us how we can learn from this ancient text, lessons that resound in our society today. For Jesus' sake, amen. In order for us to know anything about King David in the Bible, a great figure, an important figure that I'll say much more about in weeks to come, Lord willing, we must know the man he replaced, King Saul. The first king of Israel who proved that he was not the man after God's own heart. And so David had to come to fulfill that role. I always try to think of contemporary people who seem like or at least resemble biblical people and I chose an American president, the 29th president of the United States, almost a century ago, so you won't think I'm being too political. He was a Republican, by the way. Uh, Warren Harding. Warren Harding. How many of you know about Warren Harding? A very few of you here might have been in your childhood or teens, but most of us have no overlap of historical coincidence with Warren G. Harding. He was elected in 1920. It was a contested nominating convention, and Harding was picked as a compromise candidate. Many say part of the reason he was picked because he was really one of the most outstanding looking men as a senator from Ohio. If you see pictures of him, he's very striking. And of course, photography was well in use in the 1920s. And one of the first campaigns where the photographic image of the, the candidate was spread everywhere, a lot like John Kennedy and his great good looks, they said why if Warren Harding isn't president, he should be just by how impressive he looks. So, this man came in. Remember, World War I was recently over in the 1920s, and he promised a return to normalcy. Ah, that sounds good, doesn't it? Return to normalcy, whatever that is. Well, Warren Harding was elected. Unfortunately, he had a very short Uh, term as president not even a full four-year term then in those days presidents were inaugurated in march he served from march 1921 to august 1923 when he very abruptly died on a trip to the west coast probably of heart disease although even that is contested some even have an evil scheme uh, involved there but we think it's not true Sadly, you know, you think you want to remember this guy and think, gee, he, he made a good start. Let's remember him well. Well, what's the Harding administration remembered for? Some of you might have heard of something called the Teapot Dome scandal, one of the worst financial scandals this country has ever had, involving millions and millions of dollars in corruption sticking to the fingers of government figures. Cabinet officers of Harding's administration went to prison. And so the Harding administration sadly speaks of disappointment and disgrace in high places. He reminds me of King Saul, the man whose rise came in 1 Samuel 8 as I read a brief part and climaxes with the Lord's rejection in chapter 15, but the story doesn't completely end until chapter 31. Saul continues as king after the Lord rejects him until he dies in an epic battle on Mount Gilboa, falling on his own sword rather than allowing the enemy to capture. Now, you need to know that before Saul, the people of Israel had leadership, but it was not a king. There were judges and prophets of occasional types who came along, usually in some great hour of need, somebody arose and sort of seized the reins and and said, come on, men, let's go, and led Israel. Other than that, they were basically a tribal society. The different families and tribes kind of ruled the subunits themselves, and there was no centralized government. Now, you see, if you're going to have judges and prophets, that requires faith because you've got to believe that God is going to bring the right person along at the right moment when they're really needed since there's no sitting leader of a centralized government. Well, people got tired of that. And the Lord says what they really got tired of was trusting him, that he would lead them. And here's this great line that they said as they gathered before Samuel, who was the last judge on the scene and had corrupt sons, give us a king. And then what followed that was the bad part. So we can be like everyone else. Now, wait a minute. Didn't God choose Israel to be his covenant people, to make them a model and show what would happen when a whole people trusted in him, walked with him, looked to him as their king, and here they are saying, we don't want to be holy. We don't want to be different. We don't want to be distinct. We want to be just like everybody else. Least common denominator of the society. And God basically said, all right, you'll get what you want. You don't want to follow a God who draws you to be in his image. I'll give you a king in your image, and let's see what happens. Saul became the poster boy for the folly of substituting human politics for the lordship of the Most High God. Now, there are many lessons here. I'm going to draw one out primarily before I close today. but. I'm saying to you, I felt compelled that we had to talk about Saul before I jumped right into David in chapter 16, and we will hope to do that next time. So follow with me a few points about Saul this morning. The first is this. Israel really wanted a king to replace God. They didn't actually say that. Nowhere in the text do the people speak up and say, we're tired of God, give us a king. What they really say, though, is we don't want to be led the way God's leading us, and that's the same thing. In 1 Samuel 8, 7 and 8, the Lord took it to understand they have rejected me from being their king. In verse 9, he says this isn't a new thing either. They've been doing it ever since I led them out of Egypt. They've been turning to this God and that and this power structure and this scheme and worshiping idols all along the way because an idol is anything in which you ultimately trust. And they trusted in all kinds of things except… Invisible God. Now, monarchy wasn't a bad thing. The Bible doesn't con- condemn kings. In fact, you could go back and see that as far ago, centuries earlier, under Moses, Moses even predicted Deuteronomy 17 14. Look that up later if you wish and see that Moses predicted that when they came to the promised land, they would have a king. But Moses said, It should be one whom the Lord your God shall choose. And they were saying, we want a king, but we don't want God's kind of king, we want our kind of king. And so it was the motive that was wrong, the wanting to be like all the peoples around us. Just let us be assimilated and be like everybody else. We're tired of standing out and having other nations attack us and and judge us and mock us and everything else because we're supposedly God's people. Give us central government. Give us a year-round king so we know where he lives and we can go and give petitions to him. And, and by the way, he ought to look impressive. That would be good. You know, isn't it impressive when somebody's tall? We have some very tall men in this congregation. You know, I I can never feel that I lord over anyone physically because I used to always be able to say I was six feet tall, and you know, gravity's winning the battle. And, and now they always say I'm five eleven. So it's, I don't know how far down I'll settle before I stop. But I have to look up like this to some of the men of our congregation. It's impressive to have a leader who stands out as Saul did. They says no one came near him. He was handsome. He was tall. He looked like a leader. He was good as a military commander. He soon proved that after he became king. He won many battles. But what happens to a person like this is he becomes a figurehead. And figureheads, when your neck is bent looking up at them, tend to begin to be worshiped, or at least something like worship. And was very dangerous. Yes, it was the Lord who led Samuel to select Saul, but he wasn't God's choice. God was choosing that which the people had said they wanted. And I remind you, as I think I have many times before, that sometimes the most painful thing God can have happen is for us to just get what we want. He was giving what they wanted. If there was a king's selection committee, Saul stood out. Wow, here's the man. Let's have him. Let's substitute for the all-wise, all-powerful rule of the living and sovereign God. Saul, as a choice, was doomed before he ever tried on his first crown. Not only did Israel want a king to replace God, secondly, what emerges from the story of Saul is the demonstration of this. A simple point, but very important. To obey the Lord is better always than pleasing people. Now, there are these two distinct incidences. Each of them deserves much more explanation and detail than I'm going to give. I'm really skimming the surface. But I want you to see both of the key incidences which brought Saul down because his disobedience was according to how he decided things could be done instead of God. The first was 1 Samuel 13, 8 and following. The scene is Saul preparing for battle. The office of prophet and priest was completely separate in Israel from the king, the monarch. It was very well understood. The king is not the priest. He does not serve God at the altar. Here's uh, Saul waiting for Samuel to come. Uh, Things are getting a little tense because the men are thinking, well, we've got crops to harvest at home. We've got to get back. You know, we're waiting around for this battle to start, and the Philistines are rumbling off there in the distance. When's this prophet going to get here to offer this sacrifice so we can get this battle going? And men were actually deserting. And so Saul says, all right, I've had it. Samuel didn't show up. Bring the animal, bring the knife, bring the fire. I will do the sacrifice. He no sooner does it and demonstrates the fact that he always thinks he can cut corners or do it his way then Samuel comes and is horrified with what Saul has done. Why? Because it was his own way rather than God's way. Samuel, you know, it's almost a comedy of errors. Every time he's he's told he's done something wrong, he he dodges all over the place. I feared the people. I obeyed what they said. I didn't think you were going to come. The men were deserting. He's got four or five excuses for not following the word of the Lord. Well, the Lord knew and said through Samuel in verse 14 of chapter 13, you are not the man after God's heart. You have demonstrated it all too well. These people didn't force you to do anything. You understood the will of God, and you chose not to do it. You have failed the test. You know, what happens between 13 and on to 15 makes me think Saul didn't think that was all very important, that he was told the kingdom would be taken from him. But then comes another test in 15. And, you know, I will tell you, you and I have a hard time with this one. We have a hard time swallowing it. Because what it was, was God revealing to Samuel to declare holy war against the Amalekites. Holy war meaning kill them all, kill everything, kill their their flocks and their herds. Don't leave anything that belongs to the Amalekites alive. Now, you and I say, whoa, why is God doing something like that? Well, there's always a reason for what God does. And if you would like to check out the Amalekites, you can do that. They were the ISIS terrorists of their day. These were not nice people. They were very evil people. They preyed upon all the weaker tribes. They were cunning and deceitful. They lied in treaties, and they had mocked the God of Israel openly. They, they pounced upon Israel when they came out of Egypt in the original Exodus and very deceitfully treated them and, and challenged the name of the Lord God. And they were given centuries of God's mercy, and they hadn't changed. They became worse. God regarded Amalekites As apostates beyond hope. And he said, I want you to kill them all. Now, you can argue with that, but that was what God did devote to destruction everything they have. Saul did win the battle, he did defeat the Amalekites. Samuel shows up at the scene of the battle, and suddenly he's hearing sheep and he's hearing cattle. And he's saying, Wait a minute, this is a military camp. What are they doing with sheep and cattle? What is this I hear? Wait a minute. Isn't that guy that just came out of the tent back there King Agag, the infamous king of the Amalekites, the most wicked of all the wicked? And Saul had an excuse for everything. Oh, yes, the men didn't obey me. Oh, yes, we were going to keep these sheep for sacrifices later. Oh, Agag, well, he's a prized prisoner. I thought I would spare him for now and kill him later. Every kind of excuse. You can read the text everything except obey the Lord in what was really a radical command. He gives weak. Finally, he apologizes. I have sinned, he says in verse 24 of chapter 15, but followed by excuses. And then, if you'll notice the subtlety of the text, he says, now look, Samuel, okay, you did catch me cutting corners on this one, but remember, my public relations are very important. So you, you need to come back with me and show the people that you're still my prophet and you stand by me and we'll offer a sacrifice to God together and the people will know everything's all right. You're not mad at me. Samuel said, no way. There'll be no sacrifice of that kind. I will not participate in your charade. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you partial obedience to God, half-hearted repentance, justified disobedience in disguise, God will not have it. You know, it really seems like this man, Saul, got to a point where he said, look, I'm the king. I take God's commands and I decide how they should be worked out. I'm the king. Nobody questions me. Well, God does. And Saul kept thinking he could cut corners and reinterpret and barter with God. Guess what? He's a lot like us. I've done that. You've done that. When the crunch comes, who reigns supreme? The revealed Word of God or our interpretation, our compromise with it? especially that which which builds me up or makes me look good. That's what always won in Saul's eyes. My third point, and conclusively today, is this. It's really very devastatingly simple. Saul was incapable of true repentance. i pondered these two men all week and, and read the whole account of David, the whole account of Saul thought about I thought, what was really different about these guys? Because remember, you know already before we begin to study David, he was a sinful man. He was a very sinful man, on many occasions, blatantly so. He too reinterpreted the will of God. And so what's the difference, you say? Why was one man rejected and forsaken and the other one is called and known to history as the man after God's own heart? I bring it down to this very simple, powerful point, crystal clear difference between the two of them. Here it is. Saul could not have written Psalm 51. You know Psalm… if you don't know Psalm 51, that's in the homework assignment too. David wrote Psalm 51. What was Psalm 51? The greatest, most abject model of repentance ever given humanity. For David, accused of a great sin, did not say the people made me do it. Oh, it was bad. I wasn't feeling well today. He fell on his face. And he said, Lord, I have sinned against you and against heaven. Lord, don't cast me away from your presence. Wash me. Cleanse me. Lord, you're everything. I need you. I repent before you. And he meant it. The difference was David's knees always knew how to bend before God, and Saul's never did. I'm not aware of one instance where Saul truly and completely repented. With him it was, oh, whoops, (laughs) I got caught. Uh, Can't we change the agenda and move on to something else? Saul did not know what repentance was, and he never knew what the mercy of God was either. I read a true story that appears on the surface when I tell it to you to be as far from David and Saul as anything you could possibly think of, but just bear with me. This is a story about baseball, good time of year to think about baseball. And it really happened in a semi-pro baseball league in Minnesota in the early 20th century. Two teams were playing, these are just small-town teams, you know, players that get paid expenses or something to, to play one another. And uh, the score was tied in the bottom of the ninth inning. So, of course, the home team was up. The pitcher was up. His name was Thielman. And uh, here's the game deadlocked. If they scored in this half inning, of course, the home team would win. Thielman hits a single. He's on first. What does that mean? Thielman represents the winning run. If he can get around and score, game's over. All right, up comes O'Toole. These are real names, by the way. Uh, O'Toole was the power hitter. Sure enough, he smashed the ball, went over the outfield fence. Everyone's ready to rejoice. All these guys have to do, you know, not, it's not just the ball going over the outfield fence. They have to, of course, touch home plate and actually score to break the tie. Thielman runs. O'Toole runs. Get those names right. O'Toole's coming around second, heading for third, and he sees a, an amazingly strange thing. There's Thielman sprawled in the dirt. Uh, laying there still and motionless at third base. Now he thinks, what? And what, what has happened? He passed out? He, what happened? And he instantly knows the rule of baseball. You cannot keep on running around the fallen guy and score because you have to score in the order that you set out around the bases. You can't pass the guy. What should I do? We have to touch home plate. So he literally picked up Thielman Put his arms under his armpits, carried the guy forward, you know, stumbling down to home plate. Made sure Thielman's foot touched home, then his foot touched home. Game's over. And Thielman was the winning pitcher. And he actually scored the winning run. But guess what? Some of you are guessing this. Thielman was dead. This actually happened. Thielman was dead. Dead of a heart attack at third base but he scored the the winning run. Now, what does that have to do with King Saul? I think it's a perfect picture of King Saul. The man was spiritually dead before his kingdom ended. And along came David, a great hero of the people. Along came Jonathan, son of Saul and David's great friend. Along came a daughter of Saul, Michael, who was willing to deceive her father. And those people literally carried this king who descended more and more and more into madness and disobedience before his death. And they did not dishonor him throughout his life. But he was dead on arrival on Mount Gilboa when he fell on his sword, dead spiritually as well as physically. What possible application is there? Let me tell you, there's about ten applications. I'm only going to give you one because of the clock. As the year 2015 begins, do you realize we're headed for a tidal wave? No, we live inland. The ocean can't reach us. The tidal wave is a media tidal wave. As soon as we're done with the holidays and attention given to that, do you know what's going to happen? We're going to prepare for the 2016 election of a president, and nobody knows who the candidate will be for either side. We haven't had this happen in our country in a very long time. And so we are going to have nonstop talk for 20 months from every media outlet that needs something to talk about. And a frenzy is going to be built up among the American people. Who's the leader going to be? What kind of leader do we need? How about this leader? How about that leader? This party, that party, this agenda. We're all going to be swept away. Now, I'm telling you, folks, of course, it's a Christian citizen's right and proper thing to do to be involved the political process. Of course it is. As a citizen, you should be concerned. But are we looking for a leader that will make us like all the other people of the earth? I pray that you know better. I pray that you know we need a leader that will not lead to the least common denominator morally and spiritually and ignore the word of the Lord our God. And so what we need, first of all, are consecrated people who know they're different and know they're distinct and desire to be distinct according to the leading of God to, first of all, is pray, Lord, change our hearts, change us, change our country, bring revival to our country, start it with us, because if it doesn't start with us, it's not going to start anywhere, and then pray, not for a candidate who's very tall not for a candidate, male or female, who is very good looking, not for a candidate who somehow awes the party at how he can give a speech, either party. I'm not talking about a party issue here. Lord, could it be possible that we would get a president who would be a man or a woman after your own heart? Could that be possible? It won't be if God's people don't pray for it. I'll tell you that for sure. If we won't pray for it, we'll get a candidate with a weak soul and a weak brain who's all facade and out entirely for himself or herself. And God will let us have what he let Israel have. And we'll stew in our political juice for four or eight more years. I hope you will learn as we look at the life of David in coming weeks that the crucial difference between these two men was not that one was any less overtly sinful than the other. They were both sinners. But one of them knew how to truly repent and passionately surrender his being over to the charge of the holy God. That has always been the only way to be governed and to call God your Lord and Savior. May we discover that to the glory of God. And our Father, I pray that these people sitting here who are different people, distinct people, people called by you, people who have named Christ, people who don't want to simply be like everybody else, that we would begin to pray and listen to your lead and look for a leader in our country who would listen to your lead. And may you get glory in that for Jesus' sake. Amen.